good works, but they're dead. They're dead because they don't come out of a heart that has been transformed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Romans. I thank you for the truth. I thank you that your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, as we take one step at a time, it lights our way. And through the course of life, if we walk day by day with you, then our whole path has been lit. May we walk with you day by day, minute by minute. May we be always dependent on your Holy Spirit for truth, for life, for righteousness and holiness and goodness and all good things, because all good things come from you. Light our way now through the book of Romans and through this matter to which we look tonight. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is actually episode 36, which I've entitled The State of Sinful Man. Episode 36, The State of Sinful Man. In uh, Isaiah 58, verse 1, it says this, Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. And declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. That's the uh, proclamation, the admonition from Isaiah, is to cry out in a loud, distinct voice. Now, in today's culture, I think it's fair to say by the average church member that speaking out in a loud, distinct voice about people's sins would be considered less than loving, let's put it that, if not hateful. Now, we're speaking from the Old Testament, some will say, you know, as if, you know, the God of the Old Testament isn't the same God in the New Testament. One of God's names, and he has many in Hebrew, is Hua, or the same, unchanging. God has never changed. He never will change. He can't change. He's perfect. You don't change perfection. He's not growing better. He's not growing worse. He's always and exactly the same. That's who God is. And so what we, what we, as we look at these things to, in, the, in this short time right now, what I want us to understand is the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. What God says about sin in the Old Testament, is what he says in the New Testament. What he says about love, what he's demonstrated in the Old, is the same God in the New. Exactly the same. Secondly, in uh, Isaiah 58, verse 1, we're instructed to not hold back. We are to raise our voice like a trumpet. Again, in this present culture, we, which where people are told to love themselves. And by love themselves, pamper themselves, admire themselves, honor themselves, 
don't think anything bad about self. That's just, that's, that's not acceptable. Third, what God said through the Apostle Paul uh, is in this first epistle to the Romans is through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He began by disclosing the utter depravity of mankind. It's unmistakable. We're going to look at it a little bit. I'm not going back to Romans 1. I'm, I'm we're trying to talk about a doctrine, a teaching in the church that I think needs a little more explanation. Why? Because what men preached in years past, in centuries past, is not the same what's being preached today. If you look at revivals, if you look at the sermons uh, preached during revivals, and I'm not talking about some fake revival. I'm not talking about some man-made revival. I'm talking about when God comes down and he does something, like he did on Pentecost, like he did during the Great Awakening, like he did during the Welsh revivals, many places. When, he, when his spirit is poured out at the Reformation, changes take place. Whole societies move towards a more moral way of life. That's when God does something through the preaching of godly men. During other times when God is, seems to be like almost completely silent, except for individual salvations that take place, you know, one here, two, three, maybe, you know, not multitudes, not thousands or tens of thousands, like in the Welsh Revival, 1904, we're talking about as much as 100,000 people saved in that one little country. You know, dynamic, special working of God. The message doesn't change. The message has never changed. But how men perceive the message, how men proclaim the message does change. We're not perfect. You know, there is no such thing as a perfect saint except when you're in glory. And those imperfections can affect even the gospel message that's proclaimed. So the first verse I want to look to, to having given that somewhat introduction to what we're looking at. And we're looking at the state of sinful man. The state that we're all in, having fallen through Adam as, a, as, a, as the human race. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let's stop. For the wrath of God, this is like extreme anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Not some, not as if some is like worse than others, against all all, I repeat, unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So because men are unrighteous, they kind of cover it up. They stick it in the back of the drawer. They push it down in, because they are unrighteous and they, they don't want to look at it. That's what we're looking at right now. That's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about, are we in today's culture, in the 21st century, very first part of the 21st century, are we observing the truth of God in anthropology, in the study of man, 
Are we studying that? Are we looking at it according to God's word, which is true? Men lie. The world is full of liars and and lies and deception and deceit and all of that because of sin. Our church people, our people who have received the gospel, the truth into their souls and are truly regenerated or been born again or saved and they're a new creation in Christ, are we today looking at that part of the gospel correctly? Are we proclaiming it correctly? Verse 19 says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Talking about the world, God is revealed from heaven, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, those men, suppress the truth. In those men, God has revealed the truth. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident with to them. So there's the declaration that in some way, God has made known the truth. Now it goes on in verse 20 and says, For since the creation of the world, or since the world has been created, his invisible attributes, that's attributes you can't see. Like you could see Jesus living out a life of love. The men who were there, and then the proclamation in the story as it's written by God in truth, without error, is, it, it shows who Christ is. It shows him in his youth a little bit. It shows him as he goes out and proclaims the gospel and how he heals people and how he loves people. It's, if, you can, if you want to read it, you read the gospels and you see it. And you see it explained in the epistles. Now, this is talking about invisible attributes. Things you don't see, like God's always been, like God is all-powerful. He's everywhere present at the same time. He's always been. He's eternal. Those things are not seen. But here, what it says is, it says since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, divine nature being he's eternal, he's outside of time, he created time, they have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. How did that happen? How do we see the invisible? Well, when a little child comes up to his father and he says, Daddy, where would everything come from? I mean, with all the order, or with all the specificity of the creation, you look at a tree. I mean, one tree is different than another, but yet it's, it's, it's the same. It's, it's made the same. It has, it has organization to it. Even though it's not perfectly symmetrical, you know, but the, the leaf is a leaf and a branch is a branch and it's made of wood and, and all the itty-bitty microscopic pieces that go into it and it all comes together to make a tree. How in the world did that happen? Today, in, uh, in man's scientific intellectual snobbery, he thinks it happened by a big bang by accident, and there's no God. (laughs) No, No creator to organize it all together. Right. Okay. Well, what God says in Romans chapter one is that that organization, that specificity, that that thing that we look at in creation, whether it's a tree or it's a water or it's how water organizes itself, how, how water is ordered by God, how, how there's organization in it, how all of that takes place reveals the fact that there was a person before 
time, before creation, that thought it up, and then it happened. He made it. Now, it either came from nothing of itself, or it came from nothing in perfect organization with all these laws that control everything, like gravity and all of that, and all the power that it takes for, to put all of this together, all of that either came from nothing by itself, which Aristotle said is in a form of insanity. It's not reasonable, in other words. Or it came from someone who was eternal. And that's what this is talking about, his eternal power and divine nature, which is that he always was. So what I want to turn to you for a second now is I want to turn to Jonathan Edwards and I want to read a quote. Now this comes out of the Great Awakening. This comes from the, the preaching of, of a man who has been spoken of in days past as perhaps the greatest thinker on American soil so far as the wisdom of God enabled him to think through scripture and doctrine and to be more than a philosopher, but to be a theologian, an expert in, in what God has written in his word. And he's going to speak on these, uh, in this quote on man's condition since the fall and how actually terribly sinful man is. And I quote, The dreadfulness of their depravity appears in that they are so sottishly blind and ignorant. God gave man a faculty of reason and understanding which is a noble faculty. Herein he differs from all other creatures here below. He exalted, he is exalted in his nature above them and is in this respect like the angels. He is made capable to know God and to know spiritual and eternal things. And God gave him understanding for this end, that he might know him and know heavenly things made and made him as capable to know these things as any others. Man, but man has debased himself and has lost his glory in this respect. He has become as ignorant of the excellency of God as the very beasts. His understanding is full darkness. His mind is blind. It is altogether blind of spiritual things. Men are ignorant of God and ignorant of Christ, ignorant of the way of salvation, ignorant of their own happiness, blind in the midst of the brightest and clearest light, ignorant under all manner of instruction. Romans 3.17, quote, The way of peace they have not known. Isaiah 27.11, It is a people of no understanding. Jeremiah 4.22, My people are foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children and have none understanding. Jeremiah 5.21 Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding. Psalm 95.10 and 11 It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my Rest. 1 Corinthians 15.34 Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to their shame. So in these quotes and in, in this quote by Jonathan Edwards, he's pointing out this very extreme ignorance that he says is in fallen man. 
And another quote also says this, There is a spirit of atheism prevailing in the hearts of men, a strange disposition to doubt of the very being of God and of another world and of everything which cannot be seen with the bodily eyes. Psalm 121.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They do not realize that God sees them when they commit sin and will call them to an account for it. And therefore... If they can hide sin from the eyes of men, they are not concerned but are bold to commit it. Psalm 94, 7 and 8. And 9 says, Yet they say the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand you brutish among the people and you fools, when will you be wise? He that plants the ear, shall he not hear? He that has formed the eye, Shall he not see? End quote. Now, sin, as I go through this in, this in this lesson, sin was not present at the creation of man. Let's begin. We're not going to begin there. We've begun already. But let us look then at the fact that sin was not present at the creation. First, mankind in Adam was made in the image of God. In the day that he created man, he said he was good. Before the day that he fell into sin, man was made good. Adam served God in naming the animals as an example. And Adam did so out of love for his creator. He loved God. Before Adam sinned, he was not displeasing to God. And the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And that is exactly how God made Adam. And that's how Adam was. Adam and Eve loved each other before they sinned. And they fulfilled the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. They did not live in a selfish way, but put each other before themselves. That's when man, how man was created and before he fell into sin in the garden. At the fall into when he fell into a sinful condition, Adam and Eve became God-haters. And it only took one generation for one brother to kill the other. Now, the first murder that took place was uh, out of persecution and resulted in the martyrdom for Abel. Adam, Abel was martyred by his brother Cain. In Luke chapter 11, it says thus, Woe to you, verses 48 through 51, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of his day, going on in verse 48. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute. So that the blood of the pro all prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. 
So now he's sending prophets, and he's, he's, he's sending apostles. Now Christ has come. The prophets prophesied of Christ coming again and again and again for hundreds of years. And finally, Christ appears, and the religious leaders are now rejecting Christ. The point is here, and there's numerous points here, but the point that I'm focusing on is that from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, all the prophets, all the blood of all the prophets was charged against that generation. The first prophet being Abel, stated right in this verse. I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. The blood of all the prophets from Abel. Very clearly stated, no way around it, if you're going to be honest with the scriptures. So with Cain and Abel, we see the great division of men in the world. Cain is like all men, terribly lost in a state of sin. Abel, having been redeemed by the blood of a sacrifice and translated into the kingdom of God's Son, then prophesies of the truth of God for what Cain cannot see because he's yet unconverted. He hasn't come to Christ, as most men do not. Adam and Eve were also covered by the skins of animals, which is a picture of salvation. Eve, we know for certain, uh, those skins having been, uh, the blood having been shed, they understood the need for an animal sacrifice. That Once they sinned, that's the first thing that we read. And then Eve in chapter 4 and verse 1, she goes on and she says, I have gotten a man-child from the help of the Lord. She recognized the Lord. She's, her relationship was restored to the Lord. There's, we don't have an absolute quote like that for Adam, although the picture is kind of still there. But we have further evidence in the life of Eve. Apart from the saving grace of God, here's the point, all mankind is lost in a most sinful condition from which no man, woman, or child above the age of accountability can escape. All men are unwilling and unable to submit to the law of God. All men are sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. These are, these are scriptural facts that we cannot be denied. But where we're headed and what we're looking at is the extent to which man is a sinner and what we do with that. Apart from the saving grace of God, all mankind is lost in a most sinful condition. So what is the state of the sinner? Number one, mankind hates God. Understand that. Mankind hates God. Quote, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. A smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. Psalm 68, 1 and 2. Man is a person who hates God. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. And let those who hate him flee. That's the word of Psalm 68, verses 1 and 2. All idol worshipers hate God. Deuteronomy 5, 8, and 9. Quote, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, 
am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Idolatry, whatever form it might take, whether it's cutting down a tree or it's idolizing your car or your career, whatever form idolatry takes, according to God, it's of those who hate me. Among the sinful characteristics, names, in Romans 1.30, is haters of God. There's many named characteristics of sinful people. One of them, in verse 30, is haters of God. Whatever becomes an idol becomes the cause for hating God. Luke 16.13 No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So the context there, obviously, is about the obtaining of wealth and what you do with it and how you view it. But also God is saying in this that you can only have one master. You can't have two. Why? It's not talking about servanthood. It's talking about being a slave. God is a master and we're the slave. And we're only meant to be a slave to one And that's the God who created all things, the inherently good God, the God who is holy, the God who is complete, who is perfect, without sin, without error, who has always been. There's only one God. And no matter where the creation is, no matter what part of the creation we're talking about, it can only be a slave to him. Everything else is idolatry. It's idolizing someone that doesn't deserve to be idolized or something, in place of the one God who does, because he's the source of all good, all holiness, of all things. Mankind also, number one we've looked at is is a hater of God. But number two, he's blind to the truth. And specifically, he's blind to the truth that God deserves the honor that I've just been talking about. In Romans 1.21, it says, For even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. This is speculation. This isn't like written in in stone. This isn't by the hand of God. This isn't even by reason, like there must be a God because everything had to come from somewhere. This This is speculating. This is theorizing. This is like just letting something roll off the head Maybe because you want to avoid something else. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So now it's impossible to see in the dark, and that's the whole point. Man has become blind. Verse 21. Now verse 23 says, And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. I mean, it just goes downhill from this, that they're not worshiping God. He exchanges the glory for for what the one who deserves it, for one that doesn't. Number three, number one, he's a hater of God. Number two, he goes into the truth about honoring God. Number three, mankind becomes foolish. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It's Romans one twenty five. Professing to be wise, they became 
fools. The word is morano, where we get the word moron. Dull, sluggish, without an edge. You know, figuratively, it's acting stupid or silly. Insipid. Insipid is lacking in qualities that interest, stimulate, and challenge. He's become dull. He's become kind of a moron. This is the state of fallen men. Mankind is, number four, separated from the life of God. Quote, 1 John 5.11, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The way back to God, the way to receive eternal life, is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith in the one who, is, who, who has eternal life in him. You see, apart from being in Christ, identified with Christ, becoming one with Christ, which those who are saved are considered the, the bride of the Lamb. You know, man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. How does man, uh, how does he receive eternal life? And it's just this, by becoming one with God. God has to impart eternal life. The angels have eternal life imparted. All creatures that live forever have it living from within. Now, I'm not talking about just existing like men will do in the eternal hell, in the lake of fire. That's existing. What I'm talking about existing, but with the inner life, which is eternal life. Now that life is contrary to all the characteristics that we're talking about right here. We're talking about blindness, we're talking about pride, separation from God. We're talking about idolizing men, going blind in the process. Those characteristics are absent in people who exist apart from the eternal life. There needs to be love between the created and the creator. And that love that brings the two together in marriage, so to speak, in redemption, that, that is eternal life with the very characteristics of God. Mankind lost the eternal life of God at the fall, and it can only be regained through faith in the sacrificial offering for sin made by Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. Now, men are not sons as the only begotten Son. The only begotten Son came from God. So eternally, the Son, and this is the way God explains himself to us, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three are one. I can't wrap my head around that again, but that's the way it's explained. Three persons in one God. And the eternal Son comes from the Father. Mankind, the angels, all of creation came from nothing. They did not come from God. To come from God would be as God. When a father begets a son, that's a human son. The father is a human being. The son is a human being. Almighty God, the father is divinely God. The son is divinely God. This is where cults go astray. And they see the son is something other than God. Ridiculous. The, the son comes from God. He's divine as the father is. It's partly just a matter of explanation for us. Fifthly, mankind is separated from sonship of God. 
So not only am I explaining and reasoning through this, but now here's the quote that proves it from Romans chapter 9, verses 8 through 13. Quote, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? What does God mean by that? So we look at, the, we look at men who are created in the image of God, and in the Bible, they're, they're called sons of God. Sons of God. That sonship was lost at the fall. And we're talking about there, we're talking about the made in the image of God. Taking on characteristics by God's creative act. By God's creative act, men are made in the image of God. It's not the same as the father begetting the son. And both are divine. We're talking about resembling God. We're not talking being one with God. Now that is what he says when he says, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. That was lost in the fall into sin. Now they're no longer children. Even as Jesus said, you're not, you are of your father the devil. We lost that because men trusted in the devil rather than God. And they lost that connection with God. They were separated. No longer considered children of God, by God, at that point. But there is a promise, and through the promise, men are made children of God. That's why he goes on in verse 9 and says, For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It is said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now there's two boys, they're twins, and they're coming from the same woman. One, God loves, Jacob, and the other, God hated. Now, all men are sinners, and God hates all sinners. There's no other way of reading, but Esau hated. He didn't pick on Esau. God hates sin, and sin comes from the heart. And so far as sin comes from the heart, God hates sinners. Now, I know that's not what we say today. You know, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Well, God did love Jacob, and it's his choice whom he will save. And whom he saves, he loves through the sacrifice of his son. He spared not his son in order to save those whom by grace he bestowed that love for their, unto their salvation. Now that is love indeed. That's sacrificial love. That's love that's giving. That's what the gospel is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it's not a blanket love. I mean, I know that those who hold uh, free will up in an idolatrous position want to understand that God blanketly loves everybody and then it's man's choice from there. Well, that removes sovereignty of God from God. It removes who he is as God, that everything is his choice. Nowhere in the Bible does it show man overruling God in anything, ever. It's an assumption that man is left ultimately free 
in an attempt to take the blame away from God. Well, man's sin, he is accountable for his sinful choice. Don't ask me to explain, but he is. Because God holds him accountable, that means he is responsible. The choice to return is impossible, as in Romans 8, 7, and all through the scriptures. Man is just sinful. He won't do such a thing. And that's what we're talking about in here. How sinful is man? Is it every single part, including the choices he makes, which is where it all begins? I mean, if you're going to do right or you're going to do wrong, it's a choice. It's always a choice. No one forces a man to do wrong ever. Nor can man force or anyone force man to do good. It is an act of God to change the heart of man, to take out that stony heart and put in an act of flesh, Hebrews 8 and 10. And in that act, that sovereign act of God, he transforms men from sinner to saint. And he loves the saint, but he hates the sinner. If you can't receive this, if it's too hard for you to accept, that's between you and God. Scripturally, you're outside the domain of Scripture on this subject. And let me go on in this, in this idea that mankind is separated from the sonship of God. I don't want to get too far afield. The son receives the characteristics of his father. Those whom God chooses, not on the basis of man's works or goodness, but on the basis of God's grace, because it is of grace, it, it, is, it must also be God's arbitrary will. If God were to choose man because he chose him first, it wouldn't be arbitrary will. It wouldn't be God's will. It would be man's will. He would simply be identifying that man had chose him, even though Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you might have eternal life. <laughs> How else can you read that? <laughs> you did not choose me. Why? We Only after he first chose us, which makes him the key element in salvation, not man. So, in this fact, we now have come to this place where we understand that mankind is separated from the sonship of God. So, then what is the state of sinful mankind? Let's understand it through this matter of works. There are three kinds of works. I don't, people are very confused about being made in the image of God and retaining the image of God and reflecting God. And There's this goodness that's there. Stop. If you're going down that line, if you've been taught, you're thinking down that road. And I'll get to a, a quote or two left here by John Calvin. I've already gone through Jonathan Edwards. But before we do that, I want us to look at three types of works stated in the Bible. The first is good works. The second is evil works. And the third is dead works. Good works found in like John 10, 32 that says, Jesus answered them, quote, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Now this is Almighty God uh, having become a man, putting on human flesh, and as a human being, committing good works. He's doing deeds that are righteous before Almighty God. Now they're trying to criticize him for it, and so he asks them, which, which good work are you criticizing me for? First Timothy, when Paul is speaking to the rich, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world, meaning Christian rich, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, to be rich in good works. Storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, when a person has life indeed, not biological life, we're talking about God's life, living in his heart, that person, having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, produces good works, good works that are acceptable by God. Because God looks at the heart, and he sees a transformed heart. He doesn't see a heart fallen in sin. That work in the eyes of God, that's what really counts, are good. Secondly, there are evil works. John chapter 3 and verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the lights for their deeds were evil. Their deeds, things that men do that are evil. We can do that on a long list of sins. I mean, we wouldn't have to even think about it today with the people stealing other people's children and just, just down a long list of horrendous works. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one who slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Again, we're back to martyrdom here in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 where we understand this idea that one man has evil works. The other man reproves him by his good works. I'm not sure exactly what was said, or you know, maybe it was just that, well, you know, the, really, the Lord requires a blood sacrifice. Whatever it was, it was a message that Cain needed to hear, and in hearing that, it provoked him to anger. Why did he slam, it says? Because his deeds were evil, evil deeds. And they separate the righteous from the unrighteous. So we have good works as in 1 Timothy. We have evil works as in 1 John. And then we have dead works. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Dead works are works which men, from men who need to repent. Dead works are works from which men need to repent. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, that's what God did in salvation through the Son, let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation. That foundation is the foundation of salvation when we come to Christ initially. As repentant people, a foundation of repentance from what? From dead works. Dead works. They may be good as gold. They might be a, a Mother Teresa or a, you know, just name the person you love much who has nothing to do with Christianity you know, they're a, a, a Siddhama Katama Buddha, 
uh, who, you know, who is just a philosophical guy. He understands right and wrongs, and he puts them down into parables. It has nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with salvation. Good works, but they're dead. They're dead because they don't come out of a heart that has been transformed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.14 says, quote, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Dead works actually defile the conscience. There's a cleansing that's necessary when it's dead works. Because, see, dead works are not being derived from a heart filled by the Holy Spirit so that it's actually God who's generating the good work. It's men from a heart which is not living by faith in Christ alone. Couldn't be a Christian who is actually doing something in the flesh. And we know from Romans chapter 7, there's this flesh that's kind of left behind. It's not at the heart of who the person is who's a generated born-again Christian, it's, uh, it's just this, this, uh, this flesh that's not dependent on God in the Spirit, which actually leads to dead work. Now, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, talking about the church, the Sardis, the angel to the church says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, dead works proceed from dead people. It can be, as I just stated, coming from flesh. But the flesh is dead. It's useless. It's no good thing dwells in my flesh, Paul said, in that context of Romans chapter 7. So dead works are produced by dead-hearted people or dead flesh. It's only the regenerated Holy Spirit of God that produces good works. Here's the thing about dead works. They can be good outwardly, and in this way evil men can reflect the goodness that God alone produces inherently. God is inherently good. Inherently good. He's good from within. Men are inherently evil as, as we have fallen in sin. Evil men can reflect God's good heart, his character, and yet not possess that character. There's the deception. So when men talk about being made in the image of God, and now in the image of God, man is reflecting God's holy character because of some humanitarian aid or because justice is carried out on the, on the, on the, on the law, in law, through the, the bench, you know, where a judge hands down the verdict, you know, because there are reflections of goodness, maybe even forgiveness, and kind of a, a, holy, a, a, a loving heart, that reflection, which is outward, is just that. It's superficial. It's surface. Now, people don't want to believe that today. They don't want to believe that man still retains some of that goodness. Now, John Calvin, who talked about that image, Men just pounce on it today. And they'll look up quotes, you know, about the, the image of God. This is what John Calvin said. Quote, In order for us to come to a sure knowledge of ourselves, we must first grasp the fact that Adam, 
parent of us all, was created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That is, he was endowed with wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and was so clinging by these gifts of grace to God that he could have lived forever in him if he had stood fast in the uprightness of God, in the uprightness that God had given him. Now there's the quote. People jump on that. Look, the image of God. We're made in the image of God and we still, we still retain some of that image. Well, here's another quote by the same John Calvin who said this about the state of fallen, fallenness and sin. Quote, And just as God had set and ordained him so that he might take delight and pleasure in him, as a father takes delight in his very dear child, so now to the contrary, that which he had viewed with a benign and fatherly eye, eye, he now detested and looked at with regret. In short, the whole entire man, with his faculties, his deeds, his thoughts, his words, his life, became totally displeasing to God, as if he had become his special en enemy and adversary, to the point that it is said that God was sorry that he had made him. Now we understand that the flood, man had gone to this place where, you know, everything gets changed. He gets completely hard, as in Hebrews chapter 3, about hardening the heart and different places in the scripture. Today is the hour of salvation. If you hear his voice, you know, if you hear his voice, do not reject him. And so there is a hardening that can take place. And it gives the illusion, it gives the picture that man is actually getting worse. And of course, there is a certain degree that man, by hardening his heart, is getting worse. But wait, before you get there and you start claiming that man is really good down underneath it all and there's an image remaining, it is very very necessary to understand what lies beneath that hardening heart. For the sake that one man treats another man with respect and honor so as to not hurt in any way, especially that there should be no violence done to one man by another, it is good that we view Calvin from the idea that man should be given a certain amount of, of respect. That man should, we should understand man as originally made in the image of God. And then not, men are not evil demons. Some people are. Some people are so evil that it's, it's, it's hard to conceive that they take so much delight on the hurt of other people. That is true. And there are moral men in the world as we view morality. But before you run off again with this idea of man retaining the image of God, if we, if we understand the way Jonathan Edwards, again, views man, and there's many, many messages that you can get about him uh, when he really reveals, he, he kind of fillets like you fillet a fish and cuts away the surface to find out what's underneath you know, when he talks about man through the eyes of God on judgment day, that at the last judgment before the great white throne of God, the truth about man will be made completely known. I mean, everyone 
will be just stripped naked in his sight. I mean, just like when you read in, in, in Hebrews about the word of God and how it is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of sunder and soul and spirit, even to joint marrow, the bone is a, is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. I mean, the word does that. We can't do it, but the word does it. And that's how God cuts through a person's heart when he uses his word to save a man. Well, the fact is on Judgment Day, that, that word will, will shine a very focused, piercing light, like an x-ray on, on man's heart. And in that day, in that day, the truth of man will be made known and all that restrains men from becoming as evil as they might will be extinguished. The grace that keeps God from unleashing his restraining grace will be at once set free. Do to man what is righteous, his righteous and holy anger desires. That's exactly what he's going to do in that hour. In that hour, his grace will come to an end. It is not the image of God in men that restrains his anger. Understand this. It is not the image of God in men that restrains his, it restrains his anger at present. But it is his patient grace that restrains his own righteous and holy wrath. Men made a difference between the God of the Old and the New Testament. Men make that difference. The love of God is proclaimed in Christ as though the anger of God is over. Like it's all about the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus. It's as if there's no sin for God to be angry at almost anymore. Yet Revelations chapter 6 and verses 16 and 17 say this, quote, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, this is during tribulation period at the end, which is probably not very far away, quote, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now that there would include Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is so humble, he, he, he rarely makes reference to himself, but he's equal part of the Trinity. And he is a he, he's not a power of force. It is the, the great day of their wrath. And even if we focus on the Father and the Son, people look at the Father like he's mean and he's, he's no different than Jesus. And here we see it. In it's, he's referred to as the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb was slain. The Lamb offered himself in complete humility to God, to submit to God in order to save those for whom he would die. For whom God the Father gave him, as he records, in John chapter 17. In that sacrifice, in that giving of himself, and then men treading, treading down that offering and that gift for the last 2,000 years, worldwide, men have either rejected it wholesale or they pretend to be in and they're not. The day comes when men will cry out for the rocks to fall on them in order to save them, they think, from the presence of the wrath of the Lamb, for the, the great day of their wrath has come. 
and who is able to stand? And the answer is no one. No one stands, so for this reason men must flee. Flee to the throne of grace. Flee to the grace of God. Flee to the sacrifice that God made in Jesus Christ on man's behalf. Men confuse God's enduring patience with his need for wrath towards sin. God is just waiting for that appointed day. And when that day comes, he's done, just like at the flood. He's done. Man comes to an end. He'll come to an end another time at the end of the tribulation period when he pummels the earth in one way to destroy it and the other to revamp it for the 1,000-year reign of Christ. At the end of that 1,000-year reign of Christ, yet another judgment will fall. Quick, be over in a sec, and then the, white, the, white, the great white throne judgment will occur. The great white throne judgment. Are you ready for that judgment? Are you ready to face Christ right now? If you're to die tonight, and no one can say whether you will or you won't, you know, you could get a, a blood clot, could go to your brain and, or your heart and you'd kill you. Tonight. Could happen to me. There's no guarantee on life from one minute to the next. Fall in the tub. I mean, God has a thousand ways of taking you out of this world. doesn't even have to try. You just stop your heart beating. You're done. Are you ready to meet him? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Are you planning? Are you believing God's word for what it says? I mean, I've quoted a lot of verses. You can go through. You can write them down. You can look them up. See if I misquoted or I misinterpreted anything. I'm telling you, I haven't. I'm, I'm very careful to quote all these verses in context. And in the idea, as I've been stating over and over, is there is a love of God. And that love of God restrains him every minute of every day. I'm just totally obliterating this planet because of the sin that's in it right now. What is it, over 6 billion people? All sinners, except for those who've been called by Christ to the kingdom, who then become sheep to be slaughtered in the midst of a world that just, it's just so bloodthirsty. And then there's all the people who live semi-moral lives in their own, in their own sight. And they try and they do good and they, and they add up all these dead works, never really come in repentance because they haven't fallen down on their knees realizing just how wretched they are. I've done a poor job in explaining just how wretched people are. But at the end, when it's all over, and man is covering, is stripped away, he will be seen for what he is. And it's not good. It's deserving eternal punishment. God doesn't lightly toss people into eternal punishment. And yet he says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in that way. Narrow is the way. The gate is constricted that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. I hope, my listeners, if you're not already in the kingdom and you know you are because of the blood of Christ and not deceiving yourself, I hope you flee to Christ because if you haven't, your sin is a lot worse than it looks to you. But it's not how you see it that matters. It's how God sees it. And I have barely touched the surface barely touched the surface 
on how God views men. And it's not good. It's not how this culture views men. Not even the Christian culture. Not at all. Dear Heavenly Father, make this these scripture verses potent. It's not my voice. It's not my delivery. It's not even how I've organized these verses and this text and this sermon. It's not the key. That's not the purpose. That's not the point. The point is the scripture behind the sermon. The words of God, not the words of men that matter. And the words, your word, is a word that finds man completely guilty in your sight. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's what you say. In many ways, in many portions, you condemn man completely. And it's only when you pour out your Holy Spirit that men fall on their knees, sobbing. Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Lord, I pray mercy upon anyone who hears this message, who reads these verses, and is so convicted in his heart that he runs to the, to the Lamb of God. I ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.